And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it's Tuesday as we get kind of rolling through this week. And uh, today, big earnings, right? Microsoft reports after the bell today. So, again, now we're into this week, this week and next week. We're going to get the majority of those big mega cap companies coming out, Microsoft, Apple, etc. Um, Netflix kind of paved the way earlier with, you know, their report. Of course, that was good. But uh, what's interesting is, is that now it's going to be about how the market responds to these really big companies like Microsoft, etc. So uh, this is going to be kind of the market moving data over the next couple of days. And, and we'll kind of continue, you know, we'll, we'll update you on it as it goes. But we're, we're getting into the heart of really this, you know, uh, of the S&P 500 and earnings. And by the end of next week, we'll have about 80% of the S&P 500 will have fully reported. And so we're going to have a really good measure of just how good earnings were this season or, or not, right? So, you know, so far, they're about as expected. And that's, of course, not surprising. Remember, I, I told you and we, we reported on this uh, previously is that in the month of November, December, we cut earnings estimates by more than $8 a share and are down markedly from where they were when we first had the end of the year 2020, uh, 2023 estimates. So, um, you know, the, the, that bar was put really low and so far right now, Companies are meeting expectations, but they're not really blowing the door off in a lot of ways. So, again, you know, markets are doing okay here, and, and we'll talk about that in a second. But, you know, this is something that is going to be uh, more important as we go forward, as, and particularly as we talk about valuations uh, in, in greater detail. And that's really the subject of today's, today's show is that we're going to talk a little bit about valuations and how this relates to George Soros and his theory of reflexivity. Now, I'm not a fan of George Soros. The guy's pretty evil, but you know, he reminds me of he reminds me of Spectre in the James Bond movies. Has a little cat and everything. So anyway, um, but you know, the theory of reflexivity holds. Uh, you know, is interesting. And I got an email about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, asking about it. So. I've written about it before, and I just thought it was a good time with what, considering what's going on with AI and this whole chase in the markets. It was a good time to kind of revisit that theory and, and look at valuations and, and kind of what happened. So we'll, we'll talk, we're going to talk about that in the show this morning, so stick around for that. Also got a couple of other topics to get into as well. But uh, the big news this week, of course, is going to be Jerome Powell on Wednesday as we get the, the first meeting of 2024 out of the way, will they cut rates? And more importantly, are they going to allude to rate cut, you know, more rate cuts this year at, at a sooner pace? Right now, it's kind of expected that the Fed may not cut rates until later this year, but there's a lot of hope by the markets that if the Fed's going to cut five to seven times this year, now the, remember the Federal Reserve is only talking about three rate cuts this year in terms of their projections, but if they're going to cut five to seven times this year, which is the expectation by Wall Street, we're going to have to start moving those rate cuts up as soon as March, maybe even at this meeting on Wednesday. We'll see. I, you know, there's a very low expectation of a rate cut uh, this Wednesday, but there's a lot. There's, there's an increasing level of hope for rate cuts coming as soon as March. So, again, that's going to be the big driver of the market, of course, as, as we kind of go forward. And again, because that's been the case. 
know, we don't really look at valuations and fundamentals. We just worry about what the Fed's doing. But right now, futures are pointing a little bit lower this morning. Uh, bonds had a really good yesterday, uh, really good day yesterday. Um, had a nice pop in bond prices coming off support. Uh, you remember, we've been talking about how bonds were oversold and looking here for a bounce. That bounce came yesterday on the back of an announcement from the Treasury that they will need to be not issuing as much debt on a net basis. So that was that was good news. We're still going to issue about $700 billion worth of bonds, but <laughs> you know it's less than what people expected. So hey, you take what you can get. The bond market liked it yesterday as well. But here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Um, guess what? <laughs> Market set an all, another new all-time high yesterday. Uh, once you see, this, this is always funny because every day the the market's an all-time high. You know, we get it's the fifth all-time high in a row. Well, yeah, you're once you've set the first all-time high, any day you go higher is going to be a new all-time high. So it's the fifth all-time high out of six days. Okay, well that's fine. Yeah, markets are going up. Um, you know, as we've talked about here recently, markets are getting you know pretty overbought here. But again, you know, we, we still have buy signals in place. They are very overbought on, on multiple levels. The market is overbought on multiple levels. But again, that certainly doesn't, you know, dissuade people from chasing stocks. Once you have momentum behind the market, that can certainly continue to, to drag on here for a while longer. Um, but, you know, the markets are now trading at, at basically starting to push into three standard deviation territory. Uh, above the 50-day moving average. And again, you know, that's, that's not uncommon. It can do that. Uh, you know, we saw this previously. The market pushed up here and then just kind of went sideways here for a good bit of time. You know, the, the one thing to note about this is that just because you get really overbought, it doesn't mean you have to have a correction. It can mean that you can just have a long period where the market really doesn't do a whole lot. In other words, that upside to the market becomes a bit more limited. And that's kind of where we're getting right now. Again, we're kind of pushing up in this very high level. Market is advancing, but it's having a tough time advancing. So that's that overbought condition kind of weighing on the market because buyers and sellers are pretty much matched here at this point. So once we get into February now, February tends to be a little bit weaker month overall. We're likely going to get some type of pullback or a correction uh, simply just because of the deviation that we now have. As we talked about this yesterday, uh, between moving averages, we're just, you know, really starting to stretch that rubber band a bit. So as we, as we said yesterday, you know, this isn't surprising how the market's doing, but this rally that started back in October of last year is getting very, very long in the tooth. And, it, and again, it's just one of those periods we talked about buying stampedes and selling stampedes previously. And we're just in one of those buying stampedes at this moment, which is lasting for a fairly long time. And, and that can certainly occur. But we're going to go through a period where we're going to work some of this off. So, so as we've talked about, there's really not, nothing to worry about here to any great degree. But it's certainly worth, you know, considering holding a little bit of extra cash, maybe not putting a whole lot to work all at one time. Um, because again, it's just, you're gonna, you're gonna get a better opportunity to put that capital to work. You have to be patient. And again, you know, the problem is that's hard. I get that because, you know, every day it's, it's you know, Nvidia is going up or Microsoft is going up or whatever it is. Like, oh, I'm missing out. Um, you may get, you know, you may get that pullback at some point and wind up paying more for a position than it's currently priced at today. But the risk reward at that point will be better than it is today. And that's that's the hard thing for people to understand is that, you know, if I'm buying something, if I can if I can wait for a better entry point, I may actually pay more for it on a price basis, but that risk reward will be better when I do that 
in my portfolio. So again, just something to consider. Uh, again, you know, markets are, 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 are fine. There's, there's, you know, technically nothing wrong going on. And there's certainly nothing that suggests that, you know, as we kind of look at the markets itself, that we need to be concerned about things. But it is worth, you know, paying attention to what's happening in some other areas of the market as well. You know, gold prices have pretty much stagnated here. So, you know, there was a a lot of expectation that there was going to be a big run in gold earlier this year. Uh, that really hasn't matured out just yet. We'll see. We'll, we'll keep a watch on that. The, the kind of the big thing to pay attention to is volatility, which remains very suppressed. Um, we're at levels that have typically preceded market corrections of some sort. And again, doesn't we're not talking about major corrections of you know 15 or 20 percent, but with volatility as suppressed as it is, there's absolutely no concern about a market correction right now, which is, as they always say, is what the market's not expecting that tends to happen. You've got a good setup here for a bit of a pullback in the markets, you know, in February or at least in March. So again, this kind of goes back to the overall view of just be a little bit patient here. Let the market come back to you. You'll get a better opportunity to put capital work. Okay, that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we'll come back, got a few things to talk about. And one, one of the issues is, is that Congress is already starting to push on Powell to make housing more affordable, but that's exactly why housing is not affordable. We'll talk about that after the break. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So we're going to talk about uh, George Soros' theory of reflexivity here in just a minute, but I wanted to touch on this uh, article I saw on CNBC yesterday. Uh, came out late afternoon, and you know it's interesting because you know we have a lot of conversations, uh, not just here, but you know in the media you hear it a lot. It's about housing is so unaffordable. Nobody can afford housing. You know, the, the, I saw an interesting stat out this morning. The size of houses are getting smaller. So for the first time in, you know, decades, we are now building smaller houses on average than we did before. You know, we got up to about 2,500 square feet was the house. That, and so going into 2008 and, and really beyond the financial crisis, we were increasing the size of the houses we were building. So the average house, you know, square footage was getting larger and larger. And we got up to like 2,500 square feet. Now that's been coming back down. We're now building smaller houses to try to, you know, get them to be more affordable. And of course, you know, we've had the advent of tiny homes, et cetera, because people just can't simply afford to buy a house. So if, for, a, for a cool quarter million, you can get a quarter acre lot and a 600 square foot house, right? So, you know, and, and this is, you know, all a function of, of a lot of this, you know, problem that millennials and Gen Zs have. And part of their anger is they just can't afford anything, the, you know, the cost of rent, et cetera. I saw a really interesting uh, stat out the other day. There was a young, and just a kind of an example, you know, it was a, it kind of a young Gen Z guy on uh, social media. And he was talking about, well, you know, back in, back in the day, right. You know, back, back when boomers were growing up and Gen Xers, you know, you could live on $30,000 a year. And, you know, there's some truth to that. Right. And, and, but, you know, he's, he made the mistake of saying, oh, they were comfortable 
on $30,000 a year. And, and that's, a, that's a huge measure of subjectivity because when I was just, I'll just tell you my life growing up, my, my dad made $30,000 a year. He worked, he was a, he was a uh, warehouse manager for Dow Chemical, managed the versine plant, made $30,000 a year. We lived in an 1,100 square foot house with one window unit in the house. Brent's over here nodding his head. We had one and a half bathrooms in the house and a yard. And there was no extra money at the end of the month. Now here's, and here's also some other big differences between then and today. Everybody in the household didn't have a $1,000 iPhone and a, and $100 a month cell bill or whatever it is, right? We didn't have internet bills. Every person in the house didn't have to have a laptop or a, a, an iPad or whatever it was. Mom and dad weren't having to run kids all over the place to go to birthday parties at, you know, the, the iFly or the jump jump place, you know, whatever it is. They weren't having to take them to sport, you know, uh, drag them all over the town to go to, you know, different sporting events and, and this and that and the other thing. You know, you got home from school, you got on your bike, you went outside and parents didn't see you until you got home, you know, when the streetlights came on, right? Vastly different. But there was, there was not a lot of extra money. I'll tell you, I can tell you the story. I can tell you the story because my dad, my father's dead. He passed away a few years back, so they can't arrest him for this. <laughs> but I will tell you that more than once in my life growing up, I was the kid holding the flashlight at the kitchen table as my dad took the electric meter off the house and ran the meter back before the meter reader came. <laughs> so, because we, you know, it was, it, ends were tight, right? Had to make ends meet. That's when electricity was cheap. <laughs> That's when electricity was cheap, right? Gasoline was a quarter a gallon. So, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a big myth that... You know, back in the day, people lived comfortably on the salary they made. It's, you know, times are no different. And people are making a lot, you know, the average salary today is 60 to 65,000 a year. And, and, you know, yes, the cost of living is much higher, but there's also a lot of changes to that cost of living that are incredibly important. You know, we, you know, we believe that we need a $1,000 iPhone. We believe that we need internet we believe that we need all these things and the real question is is do you need them or you just want them because those those are big differences i'm not saying that you know these aren't choices that we can make or not make i'm just saying there's big differences between growing up in the 70s and growing up today and so I get it. I, you know, I do understand. And the cost of housing has certainly gone up, but the cost of housing has gone up markedly because of the Federal Reserve. And it started with Alan Greenspan back in 2000 when he started pushing adjustable rate mortgages. And that was back, you know, pre pre 2000, uh, pre pre 2000, you know, in the, the last century, you had to have a 20 percent down payment to buy a house. And the housing market lobbied Congress and they said, you know, this is, you know, we're not selling enough houses. We need to sell more houses and we can do that if we can get past this 20% down payment. So we came up with adjustable rate mortgages. 
we came up with ways to split mortgages so you could do an 80% mortgage, you know, one and do another 20% mortgage and get past the PMI and there's all this other stuff, right? And then, of course, that evolved into ninja loans and no income verification loans and, you know, vast majority of, of mortgages that went belly up in 2008. But because of demand, right, housing prices went up. And I thought it was interesting yesterday that our politicians don't learn ever. Of course, you also have to look at the politician. But it's Senator Elizabeth Warren back in action. She was meeting with uh, Chairman Jerome Powell yesterday of the Federal Reserve. And she was pushing him to cut rates. Elizabeth Warren and three other Democrats urged Fed Chair Jerome Powell to bring down interest rates at the upcoming Fed meeting, the one this Wednesday. To it now, and here's here's <laughs> here's the funny part. Why does she want him to bring down rates to expand affordable housing? Now, let's think about this for a couple of seconds. If you want housing to get cheaper, what do you need to do? There's only two options. Because the only way to bring down housing is to cut demand. So either I need to provide a lot more supply to exceed demand so that prices will come down. Or I need to make the pricing of the houses so high that it cuts demand. To the point that supply exceeds the demand and prices eventually come down to meet actual demand. And so we, we actually kind of did that, right? So the Fed hikes interest rates. It makes housing cost a whole lot more. And guess what happened to housing prices? They started coming down. But they're still too high. And now what we want to do is cut rates. Now, if I cut the mortgage rate because the Fed cuts interest rates, what happens to housing prices? It doesn't make the, just because the mortgage rate comes down, it doesn't make the housing the, the, the housing uh, more affordable because what happens? Housing prices go up. I, I, I create demand by lowering the mortgage rate. So what so what Elizabeth Warren is saying is like, I need you to cut rates so that we can make housing more affordable, but you're not going to make housing more affordable. Yeah, you will cut the rate but you will drive housing prices back up again. If you want to bring housing prices back down to a level of reality, there's only one way to do it. And it's painful. You have to get rid of 3% mortgages from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. You got to get rid of all this other nonsense in the market. You got to go back to a 20% down payment. That's it. And yeah, it's going to absolutely suck. Nobody will be able to afford a house for a while. People will have to rent for a while.
And when the pressure builds on the housing market, they will stop building supply. Prices will come down on existing supply to get it moved. But until you realign supply and demand, prices of houses are going to remain astronomically high because we keep doing all this stuff under the premise that everybody needs to own a house. Why does everybody need to own a house? And I won't even talk about the other problem that we have with the housing market, which is corporations. We'll, we can talk, we'll talk about that some other time. I have a solution for that problem, too. But we have this idea in America, we promoted this idea, and, and it wasn't we, it was the National Association of Realtors and Home Builders, that everybody needs to own their home. And look, it's a, it's a great theory. But in reality, there's a lot of people that don't need to own a home. They don't need that expense. They need to work on the other stuff in their life to get financially sound first to where they can afford a home. A home is not an asset. It's an expense. Ask any homeowner <laughs> that has to pay taxes every year. Homeowners association dues, maintenance, upkeep. Ask Danny, whose washer just flooded his house and he's having to repair everything. It's an expense. And Elizabeth Warren is not going to make it any better for you. All right, quick break. We'll come back, talk about the theory of reflexivity with George Soros. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com i was just watching uh headline news while we were on break and you know, there's a lot of divisions in this country politically between the right and the left, right? Then a lot of people don't identify with any party anymore. So I was, over the weekend, I was thinking about starting a new party. I was going to call it the Patriot Party, right? I went and looked up the Patriot Party. It's a, it's a failed attempt at a socialist party. So why is it that people are always ruining good names? That's all I want to know. You come up with a really good idea, somebody's already messed it up. <laughs> so, anyway. Uh, so let's talk about... George Soros here, and again, not a fan of, of, you know, Dr. Evil, but, you know, he has a, you know, look, he's done well investing over the years, and he's taken control of countries and a whole variety of other issues. Um, but he came up with a theory called the theory of reflexivity, and this theory tends to populate every time markets get into more exuberant stages as they are now. And it was interesting. I got an email asking, you know, about this theory of reflexivity and, and what that means. And, you know, is it kind of is it a valid theory? And, and yes, the theory is very valid. And, you know, the email I got was from one of you uh, listening to the show, and I appreciate you listening to the show. By the way, if you're on the channel right now, be sure and like and subscribe. We appreciate it. It helps us with the Google, the Google, the Google. The Google. Um, 
I'm not a fan of Soros, but this market has the look and feel of the dot-com bust in 2000. In a few short words, the AI investment phenomenon is feeding on itself just as the internet and fiber did in 1999. That's a true statement. There are some differences, right, between now and then. But, I mean, if we just take a look at, you know, I did a chart. I just, you know, threw up a chart of the AI, you know, run so far um, and the 2000. We haven't had the crack-up boom just yet, but, you know, it's it's working its way, right? So there, there's some similarities to kind of what we saw in 99 heading into 2000. And, you know, there is a, a difference, of course, that is important because that difference is that a lot of those companies back in 1999, 2000, didn't have any earnings or revenue. Right? I mean, we go through the list, <laughs> you know, Pets.com and a whole bunch of others that, you know, they just had no revenue um, and, and no plan. But today, a lot of those companies have revenue, but the valuations that we're paying on them are just astronomical. I did a list of the companies in the S&P 500 that have or that are trading at price to sales ratios of more than 10x. So this is an important point and and we talked we've talked about Scott McNeely before when we've talked about every time we talk about price to sales we you know we refer back to Scott McNeely because he may have the best explanation about this but basically a company can't support 10x revenue or 10x sales. And so in the S&P 500, there's 91 companies that are trading at very high levels. There's 100 and uh, let me make sure I just have my number right. I just want to say this. Yeah, there's 180, uh, 136 that are trading above five times price to sales. That's 25% of the S&P 500 trade at price to sales ratios of greater than 5x. Two times price to sales is expensive. You've got to grow revenue at 20% annualized. Uh, leave that chart up for a second, uh, Brent. You've got to grow sales at 20% a year to maintain your price trend and at a price to sales ratio of two times. And yet we've got companies like Microsoft trading at 13 times price to sales, NVIDIA trading at 33 times price to sales. I sorted these by market cap. But you can just go, and, and the ones in yellow are the ones that are most popular right now that, that people talk about all the time and the ones that are kind of most mostly in that AI space. But the level that these stocks are all trading at is not sustainable, right? Now you can go, now, 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 now you can... We're going to go to the next chart. And, and so, as I was saying, is that at two times price to sell, let's just talk about Apple for a second because, you know, it's on in one of everybody's darlings. It's in the thing. Um, you know, and here's a company that trades at seven, eight times price to sell and has not been growing sales on an annualized basis for a very long time. And... Again, just to maintain a, a growth rate of two times price to sales, you know, you've got to be growing your 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 sales at 20% a year. So when you're at five, six, seven times price to sales, you've got to be growing sales at 100% a year. And Apple's not doing that. And that's the reason that the price to sales ratio keeps going up because the price goes up, but the sales aren't growing to keep up with that increase in price. 
And it's the same case for a lot of these companies. The sales are growing. They're just not growing fast enough to keep up with the price appreciation. In other words, investors are paying more and more and more and more for every dollar's worth of revenue. And it's just not growing that fast. Go, go back to that chart, Brent. And, and, and so what's important about this chart is if you look, so the S&P revenue growth is red. That's the annual rate of growth in the S&P. It's trending lower as well. So again, this is where we are today. Now, now, now we can go to the next chart, Brent. But this is where we are today. You just quit clicking off my chart until I'll tell you. I'll say next chart. <laughs> but this is where we are today because, you know, we just continue to pay more and more and more for every dollar's worth of sales, right, on expectations that eventually sales are going to catch up with revenue. But, see, the AI boom that we're having right now is not new. We've go, we go through these, these booms all throughout history. These revolutions. Oh, this is a new revolution. This is the AI revolution. Yeah, maybe, but we've gone through all these before. You know, we went through, you know, the Internet revolution in the late 90s. We went through the, uh, the computer revolution in the 80s and the early 90s. And then we went through the great generation space, space exploration revolution in the 50s and the 60s. We went, you know, in the industrial revolution. I mean, you know, so you go back, and we, we always have new revolutions coming along, and we wind up getting all excited about them. We wind up overpaying for them, and then we go through a long period of working off that excitement. And so this one will likely, you know, be no different. We'll go to the next one. Than in the past, and, and, you know, and this is the problem right now, and this is th that... You know, this is the theory of reflexivity. Let me read to you this from George Soros himself about the theory of reflexivity. First, financial markets far from accurately reflect all the available knowledge, always provide a distorted view of reality. The degree of distortion may vary from time to time. Sometimes it's quite insignificant. At other times, it's quite pronounced. When there is a significant divergence between market prices and the underlying reality, there is a lack of equilibrium in conditions. So I've developed a rudimentary theory of bubbles along these lines. Every bubble has two components, an underlying trend that prevails in reality and a misconception relating to that trend. When a positive feedback develops between the trend and the misconception, a boom-bust process is set into motion. The process is, li is liable to be tested by negative feedback along the way. And if it's strong enough to survive these tests, think 2022. Both the trend and the misconception will be reinforced, think 2023. Eventually, the market expectations become so far removed from reality that people are forced to recognize that misconception is involved. A twilight period ensues, but the prevailing trend is sustained by inertia. Typically, bubbles have an asymmetric shape. Okay, we're going to get into this in a second, but here's the point. I want to come back to the asymmetric shape part. Right now, we're in the heat of the moment. And so people don't care about silly things like valuations. I need the chart, Brent. Uh, equity risk premiums and revenue growth. Equity risk premiums are falling. In other words, people are, are wanting to pay more and more and more, take on more equity risk relative to the premium they receive. This is typical of what happens when you get into a asymmetric bubble type market. So we're willing 
and again, investors are taking on more and more risk with less expectation of return. So this is, and so now let's go back to this, this last statement from George Thoreau's talking about typically bubbles have an asymmetric shape. And this is what an asymmetric shape looks like um, just scientifically. You have this, you know, this surge that runs up, then you have a big kind of decline, and then the market goes sideways for a long time, and then it runs up again. This is the asymmetric shape, right? And so have we ever seen this shape in the markets previously? And, of course, the answer is clearly yes. It may take Brent a second to get this chart up, so give me just one moment. But this pattern, this asymmetric pattern, appears regularly throughout history going back to 1900. We saw it back, you know, in 1900 through 1917. We saw it, of course, in the bubble in 1929. We saw it going into the 60s, um, had in, a, in the early 60s. We had the same same type of event. Of course, the crash in 74, the dot-com bubble, the financial crisis. If you take a look at where we are right now, you know, we're clearly in that same up upward movement of that asymmetric shape. The question, of course, is what triggers the decline, right? That's the question we don't know yet. All right, we'll come back, finish up this conversation. This article with all these charts, if you want to go kind of read through it and get all the explanations, on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. It's called Source and the Theory of Reflexivity. It's on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Welcome back to the show. I just want to finish up talking about this uh, theory of reflexivity and, and, you know, kind of the making of bubbles. And, and, you know, it's always very dangerous to say, oh, well, we're in a bubble right now because you never know you're in a bubble till after the fact, right? But there's certainly some similarities between what's happening in the market, kind of the, the greed, the speculation, et cetera. This certainly reminiscent of previous bubble periods in history. Um, and, no, we haven't done anything yet to correct that. So, Brent, can you bring that uh, last chart back up again real quick? Yeah, that one. So you'll notice that, you know, beginning in 2015, this market's been an accelerated advance, and we have not done anything to correct that trend channel yet right that trend is very very elevated 40 you know probably a 50 degree slope higher at this point 60 degrees so again you can just draw a line right across the bottom of that 2015 to present period so we have not done anything at this juncture to reverse that at all and again you know what's important is is understanding the dynamics of why that happens and again, so we go back to, to, to the theory of reflexivity is that we built, we have this, this combination of misconception and trend. And right now, everybody believes the misconception and that this is going to be the, the game changer and everything else, right? Which is fine. And that misconception leads to the other problems about valuations and price. So we take, and so again, 
misconception is all sentiment, right? The representations of sentiment are valuations and price because those are the direction, those are the reflection of sentiment. So the more willing, you know, if I'm very bullish, I'm willing to pay more for stuff. And so if we take a look at the deviation of valuations from their long-term exponential growth trend, you know, we're paying some of the highest levels in history right now relative to that long-term growth trend in valuations. That's a reflection of that kind of bullish exuberance. But we also see this reflected in the price of the market itself. And we can do the same analysis and just look at the deviation of the price of the market from its long-term exponential growth trend. The, the market should grow over time relative to economic growth, right? There's a correlation between those two. So if you have big deviations from that exponential growth trend, that's typically aligns with bubblicious periods in the market. And we certainly have that same representation today. So, again, doesn't mean the market's going to crash tomorrow. That's not the point that I'm trying to make. I'm not trying to make the case that, hey, we're in a bubble. Market's going to crash tomorrow. You need to go hide out somewhere. I'm not saying that at all. These things can last a very long time. We're 13 years into this secular cycle, and they can go another eight, nine years. These things are very hard to cha change. These these ideas, these sentiments, these misconceptions can last a lot longer than you expect. And momentum begets momentum, right? But it is, you know, an interesting discussion to have when you start looking at the theory of reflexivity and kind of the relation to where we are in the markets today and, and past periods in the markets. And so you see that same pattern develop over and over and over again throughout history, and it tells you that at some point, there will be a reversion to, re, to ultimately rebalance price and valuations. You know, as, as we always say, is that in the short term, nothing matters but momentum. But in the long term, valuations matter the most because what you pay for is what you get. And so valuations will always, at some point, reflect reality but that can be years you markets can remain irrational a lot longer than you can imagine we've seen it in the past right we saw it in the late 90s market was just going up and up and up and up and up and they can do that and we come up with all new reasons to justify these exponential market movements that we have oh well it's it's AI. It's going to change the world. The internet was going to change the world. The internet did change the world, right? Market still crashed. You know, we've had these revolutions all throughout history. And yeah, they revolutionize the ways that, that we do things. It changes the world. But eventually, markets have to reflect reality. Because what we pay for is we pay for earnings growth, we pay for expectations, we pay for those things, and at some point, those have to align with some level of reality. But again, that doesn't mean anything about today. That doesn't mean that tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and the market's going to be down 50%. I'm not saying that. Don't, don't take away from this conversation that I'm saying that because 
I'm not saying that. <laughs> the whole point of this article is just the thought process. It's just to get you to think about where we are and what we're paying for and what we're doing. And again, this doesn't mean to go out and dump all of your AI stocks, right? Look, we're long Microsoft, NVIDIA, AMD, Google. We're long Amazon. We're long all the quote-unquote AI stocks. Because we have to be, because markets are going up and we need to make money for our clients. We, you know, we, just like every other portfolio manager on the planet, does our best to track our index. So if the indexes are going up, we need to be making money for our clients. Where our test comes in is when markets are going down. And that's where we have to be quick on the trigger to start reducing risk and rebalancing portfolios, et cetera. And we, and we try to do our best, but we have no crystal ball just like anybody else does. You know, we were going, we had the economic summit this past weekend. Great turnout. It was a lot of fun. As I said, we enjoyed meeting everybody that came. But, you know, one of the things that I was, uh, that I was talking about there is that, you know, we're talking about the best predictors in the world are meteorologists for three days. And yet, as investors, we think we can see the future decades out, and that's just not true. When something changes, and it will change, it will change very quickly. The problem is just knowing when. It's always the timing. You know, we touched on this a little bit yesterday. You know, markets are really good about reflecting environments. And so, you know, I get a lot of emails from people, well, you know, what about the dollar? What about the debt? What about all this other stuff, right? You know, what about, you know, what's happening in Iran right now? The market knows all this. The market doesn't care about this. All the market cares about right now is the Fed. The market's cut, you know, banking on the fact the Fed's going to cut rates. At some point, there could be a risk there because there's a, a deviation between the expectation of what Fed, how many times the Fed will cut by the market and what the Fed says. Somebody's wrong. But all this other stuff is already factored into the markets. You will know when something's not factored into the market because you will wake up and you will turn on CNBC or whatever your channel is that you watch for finance, and you're going to look over there at the futures. The futures are going to be down 3 or 4% in the morning. Dow's going to be down over 1,000 points. And you're going to like, oh, what just happened? And there's going to be a race for the exits. That's the event the market was not aware of. That's the market that has now caused investors to rethink what they were paying on valuations. If you read a headline or somebody puts out some video about, oh, you better head for the hills because, you know, the dollar's about to crash and the market's up the next day, it's not the thing. The market's going to price it when it's something that's unexpected and that's all you need to know about. All the other stuff, just put it in a box. I'm not saying it's not worth paying attention to, but the market's not paying attention to it. The market's already factored it in. The market already knows about it. 
Because you got to remember that no matter who your favorite guy is or, or, or girl, whoever it is, who your favorite person is out there that you want to listen to for financial advice, et cetera, they only know what they know, right? That's one person. I only know what I know. That's it. And that's why we're always very careful about saying, hey, be careful about what, what you hear because it's, I'm just one person. I'm just relaying information, and I'm, I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're enjoying the show and hanging out with me in the morning. I appreciate it very much. Click the like button. <laughs> But you got to remember, the market is millions of minds and computers and algorithms analyzing all this data on a real-time basis. They are, they, are, they are looking at Twitter feeds and Facebook and sentiment and all and news headlines, and they're parsing everything. So the markets are factoring this stuff in just on a real-time basis, much faster than you can process it. So this is why it's always important is to understand the differential between what your views are and what the market is. And if you're way off what the market's thinking, this is where we've got to kind of reevaluate our positions. Now, eventually, one of those things could be a problem. I'm not saying it won't be. But normally, what impacts the markets and normally what changes that misconception back into reality is an unexpected exogenous event that nobody was counting on. And that's when you wake up in the morning, the Dow's down 1,000 points. That's when you need to take action. All right, wraps up the show for today. Appreciate you joining me this morning. Be sure to grab the website, get our latest article. It's out. Send me your questions, comments, emails. Whatever we do to help, always happy to do it. Realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day.